Good morning, Infusion Church. Uh, yeah, so my name is Andy. Uh, honestly, it's an honor to be here today. I lead a church called Restore Church in Uptown uh, North Park, San Diego. And I've existed for about five years. And um, since we've planted three churches out of Restored Uptown, we're actually uh, planting a church in Temecula, a little bit up the road here. It'll be launching uh, the first week of May. And something that's unique about being here today is that the first church plant I ever kind of bumped into was Crossroads down at National City Middle School. I'm from South Bay originally. And I remember I, I went to like two gatherings. Um, I, was, I was a part of another church that wasn't a church planting church. And so I kind of snuck away for a Sunday to see like a church that meets in a school and uh, believes in the gospel enough to, 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 to meet people where they are. And so um, we've seen multiple communities come out of our church. And I honestly was inspired uh, deeply uh, from a distance by your guys' pastor. So I just want to say, uh, yeah, I, I just feel honored, honored, honored to be here today. Uh, that being said, um, I, um, in coming here today, I was just praying through, man, what should I talk about? And I was talking to some of the leaders here, and, and I, I know you guys are doing uh, DNA groups uh, and kind of crowded houses and really like life in community. And so I really thought I would talk about that. Uh, really the idea, not just community is a weak word, uh, a, a family. Uh, that the church in the New Testament is described as a family. Uh, there's a thing called the church growth movement that's been around for probably about 30, 35 years. Uh, and it's, 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 um, there's some stuff we can learn from it. And one of the big principles of that movement was that there is much we could learn uh, from the business world uh, in terms of how to do church. Now, there is a component of how businesses are run that can be helpful in terms of keeping an eye on our finances, scheduling things, property, stuff like that. Um, but the church is not a business. It is a family. Um, and we know this. And again, families and businesses are very different. Uh, they both have people. They both have goals and stuff like that. But, but, but really, families and businesses are very different. And so today I want to talk about how to be God's family. Um, in, in, in a family, if you view church as kind of a store you go to to get religious, spiritual goods, uh, you, you, so you come to consume the sermon, consume the worship, consume the children's ministry, uh, feel good, uh, one of my favorite things that people say is, uh, I didn't get much out of the worship today. And I go, worship wasn't for you, chief. <laughs> it's for Jesus, right? Again, we don't realize, but some of the things we say are, are just so crazy. But, but again, in this Western culture, we often view church almost as a business. And, and in a business, uh, so family versus business, um, in a business, it's primarily about performance. And in a family, it's, it's, it's about grace in terms of your standing in the community. So in a business, if you are a terrible business person, uh, odds are you're not going to be with the business very long. If you own it, it may fold. Uh, or if you are uh, somebody who's just not very good at what you're doing, that's going to be hard for you to stick around. In a family, your identity is what sets you in that space, not your performance. Your identity is a brother, a sister, a son, a daughter. So in my family, uh, my daughter, Olivia, her name's Olivia Gwen Rogers. She's amazing. She's two. Uh, and she just started saying her first words a few months ago. And her first word was, I guess it was like a year ago now. Uh, but her first word was milk. Only she didn't pronounce it uh, milk. She said mook, which is a terrible way to say milk. But I got to tell you, man, when she said milk, we were pumped. We were amping. We were excited. Her brothers were jumping up and down. Olivia, say it again. Say it again. Say it again. iPhones are out. Videos. Maybe she's found a more efficient way to say milk. Maybe she's a genius. Right? It wasn't, uh, I've heard people say milk better than this. No, this is, our, this is our daughter saying her first words. It's an honor to be here. So at our church, we have people preach their very first sermon in a Sunday morning gathering. And I get up and I say, listen, this isn't going to be the best sermon you've ever heard before. I've preached hundreds of times. This is this guy's first time. But I go, man, it's an honor to be here with this guy in this moment. 
to hear him preach his first sermon. Because one day, he'll, he'll, I believe he'll lead a church. And we talk like that. And a family, it's, it's grace. It's, man, this is who this guy is. We're rooting for them to, to grow into. If it's, if, it's, if it's a business, you only put people forward who are very polished, right? You got to have a good product, R&D. In a business um, or a store we go to, uh, we consume. In a family, we contribute. Uh, a business often is, is a temporary arrangement. A, a family is, it should be permanent. In, in, in a business, you may have a CEO leader. You have a leader uh, which is kind of, kind of a big deal, kind of uh, crushing it, getting stuff done. I know not all businesses are run this way. Um, but, but in a family, you have, you have hopefully parents who are servant leaders. I've never had a moment where I, I did not have authority in my home with my children. But the way that authority is expressed is through service. That authority at one point involved wiping their butt. It's, it's servant leadership. My authority exists for their benefit, to keep them safe, to help them become who they're called to be. So there's a lot of metaphors for the church in Scripture, and God could have, um, and he uses many of them. Uh, things like bride of Christ, body of Christ, royal priesthood, holy nation, army. But over 100 times in the New Testament, the church is referred to as a family or a household. Again, the Apostle Paul uses familial language more than any other metaphor throughout the New Testament in describing who the church is. Because the church belongs to God and we are his children. When Jesus died on the cross, one of the things he accomplished was our adoption into the family of God. And I want to talk about the idea of us being adopted, how we entered this family, and then how we're called to live together. At least a few things, if that's cool. So here's the Bible. Let's turn to Galatians chapter 4. And, and Paul writes this. It says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, the Father sends Jesus, born of woman, born of the Virgin Mary, born under the law, Verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law. And so God, uh, we, we know we are created to know God, to love God, to walk with God. But then in the fall, we reject God. We do our own thing. We break God's law and we break God's heart. And we need someone to, to restore that relationship, to make things right, to fulfill the law for us. And so Jesus comes to redeem those who are under the law so that, not just that we might be forgiven for the ways that we broke God's law. But he also died, the end of verse 5, that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, sons, uh, I don't know how many ladies are here. And you guys, how many of you guys want to be a son? Boom. Only if you've done that in-depth Bible study this passage. So I, I'm going to explain real quick. Uh, in this culture, the, the, the firstborn son um, uh, was the child of honor, the child of privilege. And so what God is saying is through Jesus in God's family, you become a child of privilege, a privileged, precious child. So don't hear male, and that, in their context, male was the one who was that, uh, but here you are precious to the father. You have a privileged seat in God's household. You have an inheritance. And because you are privileged children, because you are sons, uh, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the Holy Spirit crying, Abba, Father, so you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That, 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 through, that on the cross, Jesus didn't just die to forgive us of our sins, as amazing as that is. That on the cross, he dies to sign our adoption papers with his very own blood. And we get a father. Not only is the judge appeased, but the father welcomes us home. 
And then he sends his spirit into our heart and he says, I want you to know that. I want you to know that you have a daddy. That you have a father who delights in you, who loves you. Some of us didn't have fathers who instilled a sense of identity into us or had a vision for our life or who supported us or who even knew us. And what I want to say tonight is, 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 is or this morning, is I, I want to challenge you to not um, project whatever earthly relationship you had with your father, even if it was a good one, onto the perfect father. But to, but to let the perfect father, the, the father that, that's, that's made known through the person of Jesus, let the character of that father shape how you view this father, because that's who he really is. And the father's desire is for his family, the church, is that we would love one another like he has loved us. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 23, it says, And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. And so I want to just get really practical uh, the rest of this message and just say this. In light of this gospel reality that we are adopted, which means we have a new father, that also means if you look around, you have brothers and sisters. And I just want to say that as a dad, I have a seven-year-old, a five-year-old, and a two-year-old. As a dad, I really want my kids to love, not only to love me, but to love each other. My, um, my, uh, my meme, it's my, my, my grandmother, my father's side, she had 11 children. And uh, her and my Pepe were very fond of each other. Uh, 11 children. And... Uh, Recently, I found out from my dad that, that two of his brothers haven't talked in about five years. And my mom uh, went to be with Jesus probably 30 years ago now. And I was just thinking how much that would break her heart if she was here. That he, he wouldn't want to get it, she wouldn't want to get into the details of who was right and who was wrong. That she would just want them to love one another. And, and, and with our father, it's no different. Infinitely more. He loves us infinitely more than my mom loves her sons. And so uh, today I just want to talk about, man, how do we live out the Father's love to one another as brothers and sisters in Jesus? And so I just have three key ideas. I'll move through them pretty quickly. Uh, and they are this. They are uh, intimacy, grace, and truth. Intimacy, grace, and truth. And again, there is more I could say. I could talk about mission. I could talk about service. I could talk about generosity. I could talk, to, talk about hospitality. There are dozens and dozens of one another commands in the New Testament. I'll, I'm just going to say I'm not going to hit all of them today. Being, being God's family is more than what I'm going to talk about today, but it is not less than what I'm going to talk about today, if that makes sense. So, so three points. The first one is intimacy. Intimacy. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, it says this. The Apostle Paul is describing his ministry to the church at Thessalonica, and he says this. He says, so being affectionately desirous of you. Again, does this sound like something a CEO would write in an email to a random subordinate? Yes, if he wants a sexual harassment lawsuit or she wants, right? This just feels intense and strange. But, but don't think romantic, sexual. Think parental. Think the affection of a father. Being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God. We must share the gospel of God with one another, but also ourselves because you had become very dear to us. Paul's saying, share your life with one another. I shared my life with you as an apostle, as a church planner, as a pastor, as a leader. There's other spaces where he says, um, I was like a nursing mother to you. Imagine Matt said, hey man, just so you know, I just feel like I've, I'm like a nursing mother to you. Paul had no shame to, to talk that way. 
There's this family, this, this love, there's this intimacy, there's this shared life. And by the way, I'm not going to ask you guys to, to, to nurse each other. I don't know. Uh, but man, is there an intimacy? Are, are you known? I want to highlight, man, um, do you share yourself? And it doesn't need to be with every single person in this room, but does anyone know what's know about you? Know what's knowable about you? And I think there are two areas um, we can be known where, where we're called to know one another. The first is in the area of sin. Uh, I know no one in this room sins anymore. I know sins so 10 years ago. Um, but, but for the three or four people here who do sin, uh, I just want to say, that's a joke, you guys. Sheesh. Okay. Um, we all sin. We're all in need of grace. So, so, so we need to let each other in on that reality. James 5.16 says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Then in Romans 12, 15, Paul says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And so both of these passages presuppose the responsibility of sharing our lives with one another. In two key areas, again, sin and in suffering. One of the um, saddest things in the world to me as a pastor is when I'll have, we have, I don't know, 150 people at our church, when, when, when there is a, a room of, of 100 to 200 people and there is someone who has been there for years and no one knows that they're suffering. That God has given them this family and they live like an orphan who's just got to take care of themselves in the dark. People that have suffered through miscarriages. People that, I know a woman who, who she was in her 50s when I talked to her about this, but when she was in college, she had an abortion. She had carried that secret her entire life. She even got saved, confessed it to God, but never had talked to anyone else about it. So there's sin and suffering, but God goes, no, man, people can't rejoice with you if they don't know what's rejoiceable. They can't mourn with you if they don't know. So often people go, man, no one, no one cares about me. No, one, no, you have to let people in on your life. For them to mourn with you, they've got to know what's going on. For them to rejoice with you, they've got to know what's going on. And then sin, this one's a little harder for us. Just kind of, we want to let people in on our suffering, but we also want to let people in on our sin. Also, our, our celebrations, that's probably the third one, <laughs> the rejoicing, it's not all, but, but in our sin, man, do, do you let people in on your life? I have some friends who work as nurses in the ER, and they said one of the hardest things to deal with is like Friday and Saturday night when drunk, hurt people come in, and they can't verbally articulate really what happened to them and they're trying to discern what's happening so they can help them, right? So, so, and you can imagine why this would be hard. You can imagine uh, walking into a hospital and saying, it hurts! It, it, right, just, it hurts! It hurts so much! What hurt? It hurts! Help me! Like, what? And so often, this is how we can kind of share our sin in the church. We, we confess really vaguely and generally, because here's the thing, uh, a brain aneurysm needs a different treatment than an ACL tear. A broken toe needs a different treatment than tuberculosis. Cancer needs a different treatment than migraine headaches. I could go on and on. And so often we just confess kind of vaguely. I wrestle with pride, kind of, or, or lust. My favorite things to do with young guys is to go, I struggle with lust. They go, how? <laughs> what? <laughs> what do you mean? Struggling in our marriage. Yeah, like what are you guys, what are you guys up to? Not in a mean way, but, but in a real way. I mean, and here's, here's why. You can't get the treatment you need if the doctors don't know what you have. You could have the most skilled pastors and leaders and crowded house leaders, missional community leaders and DNA leaders uh, in the world, but if they don't know that you're in need of treatment, they cannot help you. And so, man, we, we've got to let people in, and it's embarrassing, but here's the deal. The cross outs you. 
You're a mess. You might look, and I'm a mess too, by the way. You, you might look put together on the outside, but our hearts are in the process of being sanctified. They're being set aside that we are in the process, progressive sanctification. We are slowly becoming like Jesus, but you are not there yet. Jesus, you're so bad, Jesus literally had to die for you. The cross already outs us. We don't, we don't need to pretend that we can, we can get the help we need, not to shame us, but so that we can receive a grace, a grace that pardons us for our sin, but also empowers us to put that sin to death. And we, we need that. So intimacy, again, I can't help you if I don't know what's going on in your heart. The second, the second thing, and this hopefully should make intimacy easier to do, is, is grace. A lot of times the reason we don't share our sin is we're terrified of what will happen to us if we Talk about it. But in a truly gospel-centered church, if you're in an honest place of repentance and faith, we've got to lock, we'll walk alongside you to help you be set free and put this sin to death. That's different than defending it or going, this is just who I am. When you go, honestly, I hate that my sin is against God and it's against people and it's destroying my life and I want, I want to be set free from this. It's good. I know a guy that loves to set people from this. His name's Jesus. Let's, let's, let's roll with him out of here. So there's intimacy, but then there's grace, and grace should make it safe to share. Colossians 3, 12 through 14 says this. It says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. If you want to know how to live as a Christian, often all you need to do is ask yourself, how has God treated me in Jesus? If you're ever like, how do I deal with this situation? The New Testament ethic is, look at the gospel and look how God has treated you in Jesus and then do that to other people. God never asks us to do anything for anyone that he doesn't do for us infinitely more. So he goes, um, since you're loved, you're, you're the beloved of God, love. You've had a God who has met you in compassion. Be compassionate. You have a God who's been infinitely patient with you. Bear with one another. You have a God, Matthew 18, you have a God who's forgiven you. How can you withhold forgiveness? It, it's, it's, it's live out of who you already are. Do what's been done for you. So we want to be a family who forgives one another often and bears with one another's differences in love. Again, you want to be a church who separates with tears over mission when you're sending a church plan out and God's calling. You don't want to be a church that separates over unresolved conflicts and petty differences. Have you ever heard of like the, um, the, the and, I, I mean, and this is a caricature, but I mean, you might have heard a story like this, a church that like split over, a church is split all the time, that split over like the color of the carpet. You ever heard of this like church type idea? No church has ever split ever over a carpet. What happens is, is the carpet's a proxy war where the unresolved conflict and bitterness comes out. If you could actually divide yourself over carpet, you probably don't know Jesus. It's not over carpet. It's, it's, it's over the problems. Uh, it's over sin in our hearts, unconfessed sin. It's, it's bitterness. It's a lack of love. But according to this passage, if we look at, if, if our ethic is shaped by how Jesus treated us, that, that we receive grace and then we give grace, this means we don't leave when it gets hard. Some of you guys, the minute conflict enters the situation, you want to run. And I want to just lovingly plead with you, don't run. 
God wants to shape you into who he wants you to be. Conflict's a tool he uses to grow you up. And if you run every time someone tells you something you don't like to hear, you're not gonna grow. I think this is why marriages are such a mess in our culture. Because marriages reveal what's always been true of you. I, uh, I got married when I was 19 years old, and uh, about 10 years into, our, into my marriage, my wife confronted me, and she said, hey, I don't know if you know this, um, but you've gained like a cool 60 pounds in the last 10 years. And uh, you know what's funny? Because it was so progressive and gradual, I just really wasn't aware of it. Uh, I, I ran track in high school. Like, I, I just have never been a dude who thought about my weight. And I mean, I knew, hey, I'm getting a little bit bigger and stuff. And, 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 and I bring this up not to make, like, losing weight the big idea. But the point was, is she, for me, and it, this isn't true for everyone, for me, it was truly a lack of self-control. I just was kind of like California burritos, snacks. Uh, it was my lack of self-control. It wasn't, but sometimes there's medical conditions and stuff like that, that thyroid issues and stuff like that. But that wasn't me. It was a lack of self-control. And she felt like I didn't love her. And so what I did was, is uh, I go, okay, you know what, tomorrow, I'm, I'm jumping in. I ended up losing like 50 pounds uh, over a year and a half. And, and I said, tomorrow I'm going to start dieting. I'm jumping in. And I decided I'm going to do what I used to do back in the day, which was run. So I go, hey, I'm just going to start running. I hadn't ran in about five, six years. And I went out there and I started running. And uh, uh, about a quarter of a mile in, I can't breathe, like at all. And uh, it was probably a really sad thing to see on the side of the road. And uh, I'm sure people were praying for me that saw me. Lord, Lord help that man. And uh, now, now here's the thing. I, what I could have said is, man, I, I, I was totally in shape. I, I'm in great shape. Just running made, put me in bad shape, right? I was in good shape. No, running revealed the shape I had been in the whole time. God uses our relationships to show us where we've been the whole time. So in marriage, it's like, oh, she made me this way. No, you've always been this way. You just have a mirror. And friends, the church is the same way. Maybe you actually are a jerk. Maybe you are insensitive. Maybe that comment you said, even if you didn't mean it, was hurtful and you should apologize. God, God sanctifies us. And we all need this, by the way. This isn't just one. All of us need this. We have different things. But, but, but we're called to, um, we don't need to withdraw. Jesus says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. So we don't need to withdraw from one another. He also doesn't pour out his wrath on us. Jesus received his wrath. What does Jesus do with us? He moves, in the gospel, he moves towards us to forgive us. He doesn't go, ah, your sin's no big deal. Sweep it under the rug. He goes, I, I'm, gonna, I'm bringing it out in the light. I'm going to die for it. Your sin is so bad that I have to die for this sin, that the righteous wrath of God should fall upon this. But no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to drink that cup myself. There is no wrath left for you, not a drop, because I drank it all. He doesn't sweep your sin under the rug, but he also doesn't beat you up over it. He, he moves forward in love. He engages you in love. He doesn't withdraw. He doesn't attack. He engages in love. So I want to be a people of grace. When you've received that grace and you've tasted that grace, and how can we hold things over people's heads in such a petty, self-righteous way if Jesus doesn't do that with us? So this passage says to do two things. Grace involves forgiving sins, and it involves bearing with, which I think is a really underrated command. I think forgiveness, you go, yeah, that person sinned against me. I need to forgive them. But I love that, that, that bearing with is in here. Because bearing with is, it's, 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 it's not people who have sinned against you. It's overlooking differences. I love that Paul's like, man, people at church, they're going to get on your nerves. By the way, you get on someone's nerves here too. And no one likes, you don't know, you're someone's bear with. You know, do you know someone has, has to apply that verse with you? We all like to think we're like the easy person to be around and everyone else. Right? At the service this morning, I said, you're someone's bear. 
right? So, so there are people in your life, right? There, there are just differences. There's personality differences in the church. There are people, there, there's extroverts, right? And you walk and you go, could you please stop talking? Oh my God. There's introverts that is, and you're like, oh, you're so, you just look at me awkwardly and quietly. You're not praying. You're just pretending. You just don't want to talk right now. There's people who, uh, who are really emotional and in worship, they cry. Maybe like, I haven't cried since 1977. I'm, I'm cool. I'm rational. I'm a thinker. I love theology. I love books. I don't think, I, I don't make decisions with my feelings, but there's someone else uh, who does. Maybe, maybe you're really organized, right? You see, you see where all our self-righteousness, by the way, all these are morally neutral, just so you know. You're not better if you're more emotional. You're not better, right? We see this with, uh, yeah, worship styles, right? There's someone, they're like, Jesus, right? Hands lifted, they're dancing. You go, oh, that's a little too much. It's a little too much for a worship service. Have some reverence, right? But then you look over and there's someone like this. Jesus paid it all. You're like, that's not enough reverence. What is that? Right? You're the, you're the perfect standard of worship, right? Just enthusiastic enough, but not weird. We're so self-righteous. So, so the Lord goes, you're gonna have all those people in, your, in, the, in the room and I'm calling you to bear with them. There's some people who run late and they're doing the best they can. And they, they just, they struggle. And there are people who are always on time. And sometimes they're on time and they're mean to people who aren't. Uh, and you go on and on and on that, 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 that man, we, we're called to bear with one another. I also think bearing with one another is important in the area of jealousy. And in the area of people offend you, but not in a sinful way. One of the... Um, deepest wounds my wife ever experienced relationally was she was very, very close to another pastor's wife. And, uh, and, and my wife didn't know it, but, but this, this one really, really, really wanted to get pregnant, and they had been trying for years, and it had not happened. And then uh, my wife uh, got pregnant, and we weren't really trying. We were, we were open, I guess. Um, but, but, but anyways, um, what my wife started to notice was she, she stopped being invited to like events with some friends. There was a couple of friends who were hanging out. And, uh, and over time, it just was really obvious, like everyone in their circle except for her. And then she found out one of her closest friends was the one that was telling people, hey, don't invite Jack. And, and again, about five years later, this girl came to Jackie and apologized and said, honestly, I was so jealous of your pregnancy. I was so immature. I just couldn't handle to be around you. And Jack, said, uh, and Jack forgave her, and they talked about it, and it was beautiful, and she's grown so much. Um, but one of the things Jack said was, man, I wish you could have just told me. Like, it's hard for me to be around you because I'm, I'm, I'm jealous, and I'm insecure, and I'm afraid. And I would have loved, loved you through that and, and, and helped you. And things like that happen all the time. And we're called to bear with one another. So, so, so God's family, we're called to intimacy. We're called to grace. And the last thing, and I really want to spend the rest of our time here, we're called to truth. That in John chapter 1, it says that when, in the incarnation, when Jesus came to earth, it says that he, was, he came and he was full of grace and truth. We live at a time in our culture where we assume uh, if you tell the truth, you have to be unloving. Or if you're loving, it's, it's, it's because you're not sharing the truth. Uh, conservatives and liberals in our culture cannot do this. It's assumed you either write someone off completely um, or you, you, uh, um, you tell them the truth and kind of write them off um, or you kind of water down what you believe. But, but you can actually uh, share the truth in love. Uh, Colossians chapter 3, we'll keep going, verse 15. Again, grace should impact the way we treat one another. Uh, continuing the passage, it says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. 
Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Oh, is that, is there verse 17 or no? Cool, okay. <laughs> Surprise. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so I want to park on, on Colossians 3.16. So Paul's saying this is how I want you to live with one another. Um, and in 16 he says to teach and admonish one another. What does it mean to teach or admonish someone? So, so I think there are two sides of the same coin. Uh, there is teach. Uh, and now teaching is helping someone follow Jesus when they were ignorant as, as to how to follow him in that area. Okay? So this is someone uh, who just gets saved and they're like, I had no idea I had this. I was a college pastor at San Diego State. I had no idea I couldn't have sex with whoever I wanted to. I didn't know there was an ethic tied to sexuality. Or the person who, who hoards money and has lived for building personal wealth and they become a Christian. Like, I had no idea giving was a thing. And you're supposed to give more than you spend on coffee each month. No idea, right? So, so, so we teach the uninformed, but we admonish the rebellious. We admonish is when we confront someone rebelling against what they do know. This is the person who's been a believer for a while and they hoard their money or they spend it frivolously and they don't give to the gospel or, or they, um, they do know about God's standard for, for sexuality, his standard for, for human flourishing in that area and they go, man, I'm doing whatever I want to do. And so, so we admonish um, and teach. And I want you to see that, that, that we're all called to this work. This is a one another command. This isn't pastors teach and admonish which I know you guys wish that was the case. We're all called to this, guys, ladies. We, we will not grow up into maturity, according to Ephesians 4, if we don't do this. And so I want to talk about, um, and, and I think teaching, like encouraging someone that's a brand new believer or someone who, who doesn't know something, isn't that threatening? I think most of us can handle that. Uh, again, if you have questions about that, talk to pastors. What I want to talk about today is the thing that I think is harder to do, which is admonishing. How do you give and receive an admonishment? How do you give and receive truth? Um, what, what is the purpose of admonishing someone? Uh, is it to punish them? You see that, right? They're in sin. Is it, it, no. Galatians 6.1 is a key passage. It says, this, it says, brothers, brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, a sin that's dominating their life, you who are spiritual, and you who are spiritual in the context of Galatians is someone who's received the gospel by faith and is walking closely to, uh, in the spirit, should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself lest you are tempted. Now, the word restore there, uh, this is important. Um, this was a medical term. This, was the, this is a term that was used for the resetting of a broken bone by a doctor, okay? This isn't a punitive term. We're gonna get, you're going to get someone in trouble. Uh, the, the goal was restoration. The goal was healing. The goal is repentance and walking closer to Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not making them feel bad about their sin just because. It's not, it's not judging them. Um, again, so we should admonish when you're concerned about someone's trajectory. If they're moving away from Jesus, not towards Jesus. And you guys, we, we all need this. We all need to do this, but we all need to receive this because we are easily deceived. We are always in more danger than we think. Hebrews 3.13 says this. It says, but exhort one another every, <clears throat> every day 
Now, in the New Testament, there is, uh, there's kind of a high level of Greek and a low level of Greek. And uh, like the Gospel of John is a low level of Greek. It's, it's, it's a little more, colloqu- more colloquial, uh, not as intense to, to, to understand. Uh, if you're in seminary, uh, Gospel of John is often where you'll start studying Greek. Uh, Hebrews is a very high-brow level of Greek. And that being said, when, when, you, when you see it say in English that you should exhort one another every day, um, what do you guys think the word every day means in Greek? What's that? Yeah, every day. It's every day. Yeah, it's every day. Now, none of us believe this, but the the author of Hebrews goes, man, you're in danger. You need this daily because every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, that sin deceives you, that sin is crouching and waiting at the door, that no one lies to you more than you. You know, so we assume the best about ourselves, but the worst about others. Best about our motives, but the worst about others' motives. That we are weak people in need of rescuing. Because we're in more danger than we realize. Uh, my sister-in-law is South African. And uh, her family had a vacation rental, uh, kind of in the bush, uh, about three hours to drive into the wilderness of South Africa. And it's kind of like a big bear cabin for our terms that they shared with us. It was kind of like a timeshare type, type thing and Airbnb type thing. And they get to um, the house and they get in. And in this area, you know, the, the lions are kind of fenced off and stuff. But there's some other animals around, springbok, deers and stuff like that. And uh, she walks into the kitchen and the kitchen has an island, you know, like a kitchen island. You can cut and prepare food across from like the sink and the stove. And she, uh, she, she walks in. She's 15 years old. She walks into the kitchen. She hears kind of a little bit of, a little bit of noise. And she realized that whoever was uh, in the, the, the unit last left the back um, screen door open for probably days in, in the bush of Africa. And so she's a little rustling. She's like, huh. And so she takes one step further, and then um, two eyes pop up on the other side of the kitchen island. And uh, it was a, a baboon was in the house. About four to five feet, uh, canines, five times the strength of a man, razor-sharp claws, uh, hi. Uh, and uh, they always say in South Africa, it's worse to die by lion than by baboon because they slowly rip you apart. It's really beautiful. Um, uh, <laughs> and so Elisha, she takes off running. She screams. You're not supposed to run or scream, uh, but she does. And then uh, the monkey died. It's, it's death at the hands of a shotgun. Now, uh, I bring that story. I realized it didn't really, really flow. Uh, I bring that story up just to say this, is that Jessica was in, insane, in an insane amount of danger, and she had no idea what was lurking right there. That is you with sin all the time. But, but unlike Jess, instead of running away, we go, oh, baboon. I, I've heard you guys are nicer than the press releases. Maybe, I know normally it's not good, but I think maybe you're the kind of guy, maybe you can hang around a little bit and, you know, have a little bit of bitterness, a little bit of yeah, I don't, I don't really give sacrificially, or yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sleeping with my girlfriend, or, or yeah, I'm, I'm flirting with a coke, or whatever it is. We, we have this, it's just a little bit. It's not, I'm not going to go too far with this. And again, left to our own devices, we all drift away from Jesus and what he calls us to. We deceive ourselves in the spirit of Romans 1. And I, I want you to think about the marriages that could have been saved, the relationships that could have been saved, the addictions that could have been avoided if people who loved people earlier in the process said, hey, I'm worried about you. Not in a judgmental way, but in a, man, I don't know this for sure, but I've noticed the way you're talking to your wife, dude, just seems harsh. 
Or I've noticed you, you seem you're, like you're way too close to your coworker. I know that guy works with you, but it seems like you're, you're too close to him and you're, and you're married, you're following Jesus. Or, or man, I've noticed, like, we hang out, we have a couple beers, but you have, like, you have, like three, four, and, and, and I, don't, I don't even know if, if you stop when we leave. Like, I just feel like you might be overdoing it, and on and on I could go. So that's why we, we should admonish, to restore people. Um, why shouldn't we admonish? Because uh, you're mad, because you're insecure, because you're jealous, because you're having a bad day. Uh, you, you, can, you can hold off. If you're mad at the person, uh, hold, uh, hold off until you're not mad. Um, God doesn't need you to be a jerk for Jesus. Get, and, and how should we admonish? I think there's two things, um, gently and directly. Let me see this in Galatians 6.1. Again, the word for restore is the word for resetting a broken bone. Uh, I've done a lot, a lot of ministry in South Africa and in Mexico and in, in both places. Anytime you're in a, a space where there's too often uh, inadequate medical care for too many people. Uh, for, for, there's not enough adequate medical care for, for, for not enough people. Um, you'll often see people with, with lumps and limps from bones that weren't reset properly. And this is our reality, that, that you can actually do more wounding in the way that you admonish someone. So we need to be gentle and direct. I want you to imagine a doctor. I want you to imagine you... Uh, fall off a bike and you have a clean break on your leg, snapped in two. I want you to imagine you, you walk into a doctor's office and, uh, and you go, oh, it's broken. They go, oh, it's broken into two, I see. And they take a hammer out and they break it into eight pieces. Okay? Be a terrible doctor. You want a gentle doctor who's going to reset that thing and, and nurse it to wholeness. But it's also a really bad doctor that goes, ah, oh, it's not... It's not, a, it's not a whole break. It's, it's, it's going to be fine on its own. Like, you're, you're okay. I don't want to bum you out today. You're fine. You got to be direct. Why? Go run on that thing. Why? Because it, it'll make it worse. Both of them will make it worse. To not lovingly call them out is to, to let them walk, run headlong into sin and pain. But, to do it, but, but if you do it in a harsh, judgmental, self-righteous way, they could also take off and run. So why gently? Uh, gently, you don't want to push them away. Again, you want to do it in a spirit of gentleness. The second reason to be gentle, though, is that on your best day, you are more like the person you are admonishing than you are like Jesus. On your best day, you're more like the person you are admonishing than you are like Jesus. In the second part of Galatians 6.1, it says, keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted. It implies that you could be susceptible to the same thing therein. You can be tempted. You are not above them. You know what it's like to be tempted, to be angry, to look down on others in self-righteousness, to lust, to love something more than God, to feel stuck in sin, to need grace. Because we are fellow beloved sinners, we should come alongside people, not down on them. Again, you're not better than them. And by the way, we need this from each other. I want to make this clear. If you're always, um, if you're always the one who is uh, admonishing people, but you're never being admonished, man, be careful. You need it too. It could be the same day. You admonish them, they, they admonish you. The third reason you should be gentle is that they are God's beloved children bought with the blood of his son. Colossians 3.12 says that, that the person you're dealing with is chosen and holy and beloved. 
Uh, one, one way that, that Tim Keller describes the gospel, many of you guys have probably have heard before, is that you're so bad that Jesus had to die for you, and at the same time, you're so loved that he was glad to die for you. And as you go to confront someone, you need to remember the first part of that for yourself and the second part of that for the person you're admonishing, right? So like, uh, as you go to admonish, I'm so bad Jesus had to die for me. I am not better than the person I'm about to go admonish. And on the flip side of that, you need to remember, and the person I'm about to admonish is so loved by the king of the universe that he sent his son to die for them. They are, the person I'm about to talk to is the precious kid of the king of the universe. I better be very careful and gentle about how I deal with them. I am sinful. This person is a beloved child of the king. So we want to confront gently and directly. So the last big idea is just directly. Again, you got to be specific, just like people need to confess specifically. If you see something, maybe a blind spot they're not aware of that you want to bring to them, you got to be specific about it. If you've already, it might be a little awkward, but if you've already gone to the trouble of admonishing them, you might as well get specific. I've noticed sometimes you're mean to some people. How? I, I, don't, I don't want to get into it, man. No, no, we, we need that. My son's uh, playing baseball, and uh, he's seven, so that is a challenge uh, coaching uh, Little League with kids under the age of nine, I think, is just insane. Um, and, uh, and, and so we're uh, working with him on his swing, and we'll talk about, you know, feet check, hand check, uh, head placement, the whole deal, uh, where should he hold his bat, all that stuff. And, and, and to improve his swing, I have to be able to actually know what needs improving and then, just, and then share that with him. If I'm just like, hey, dude, your swing's bad. Clive, your swing's bad, dude. What, what's bad? I'm not going to look, dude. I just know it's bad. I see the stat sheets. Yeah, it's caps. Yeah, we keep track. What it, I, I don't, dude, it's just bad, okay? Super unhelpful. You don't want to be direct, man. I, when, hey, I, I could be reading into this, but um, the way you talked to so-and-so like, just felt like, kind of harsh or passive aggressive. Is there anything going on there? Have you talked to them? Do you need help? Hey, I, I feel like you had a lot to drink. I, I could be wrong. Are you, is this a thing at all? Or are you noticing this? but to actually bring up specific spaces, places, and times. And then the last thing I want to I talk about is just how do I receive an admonition? Someone wants to admonish me, how do I receive that? A great question to ask when someone admonishes you is just, is this true? Whatever it is, uh, it may and probably will hurt, but that isn't the main thing. The main thing is, is this true of me? Is there any chance that this is true of me? Again, uh, the, the, person, the person admonishing you is probably a little bit nervous. Uh, they probably don't want to have this conversation with you any more than they do. Think about how, someone, how much someone has to love you to have an awkward combo like that. If they're not coming self-righteous and angry, like they're just like, hey, I, I think this could be a thing. They're putting themselves out there for you. Another important thing is be careful not to simply dismiss someone or quickly call into question their motives or how they brought it up. You should be more focused on, is this true, not, how did you say this? I know of a man who was cheating on his wife, and a guy called him out on what he, what he saw. He wasn't sure, and the guy was so offended at the way the guy brought it up. I was like, bro, but you're cheating on your wife. That's the big idea today. We'll get into his confrontation skills later. Again, and we, all, but here, and we can laugh at that, but we all do that. We're more concerned about, about you shouldn't have said that to me than, than man, I, I hurt you. So in closing, I want to just ask these questions. Let's call the, call the worship team up. 
or area or the we'll set up for the Lord's Supper. But the first question is this: Is are you open? Are you actually open to a brother or sister admonishing you to receiving truth? I think we all want. I think many of us deep down want intimacy. I think a lot of maybe not all of us, but a lot of us we 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 know it's a good thing. I think a lot of we all want grace, right? If if God's word was a buffet, man, we we would just keep grace on our plate, right? Keep the truth truth at a minimum. But in terms of someone bringing you truth, are you really open to that? And if you're not, I want to challenge you to talk to God about that. He can absolutely help you open up if you want. Also, the cross has already outed you. You really have nothing to defend. This is huge. You're so bad, again, that Jesus had to die for you. Um, Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, um, if a man thinks ill of you, uh, that you should not take offense, because even if he is wrong in the details of his confrontation of you, um, you're guilty of far worse than he knows. So even if it's like, ah, you know, I'm not, I'm not bitter towards Tiffany. It's like, cool, but you, you like want to kill Vanessa. It's fine. Like, like, like you're, you're still a sinner. It, when people go, how could you think that? Why don't you trust me? Because you're a sinner. You, you're deceived. You shouldn't trust yourself. I love you enough to, to talk to you about it. We should not be offended. We should consider it an honor that someone, even if they're wrong. By the way, um, even if you've been misunderstood, you are often misunderstood in the positive. We get all offended. How could you think I would, you know, a lot of times you're we'll like, how could you think that I like you when I hate you in my heart? You always, people assume the best about you. You're not offended by that. So just, man, are you open to a brother or sister admonishing you? Do you really believe you're a sinner in need of grace? A saint who's being sanctified, that you are in that process. And then my second question is this. Is there someone you need to admonish? Is there a member of your crowded house or your missional community, your DNA group that you're concerned about? Is there someone here you love that you see going down what could be a dangerous path? You don't know for sure, but maybe you could ask some questions. And is there someone you feel is, is growing a hard heart that God's putting on your heart to pursue? So again, are you open to a brother or sister admonishing you? And then two, is there someone you need to admonish in light of the gospel, not in a self-righteous way, but lovingly, pointing out their sin and lovingly trying to walk them into freedom. Jesus, thank you that you, you deal with us so gently and so patiently.